Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topics of criminal profiling and investigative psychology. Hello, Dr. Scott. How are you? I'm awake and caffeinated, as I think you are as well, (laughs) in this early morning recording session. Yeah, yeah. Both of those go together for sure. So just a little housekeeping at the top. I held Dr. Scott to the promise that he made. He makes a lot of promises on this show, and I got to like grab him in the air and catch him sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, it's quite true, yes. Some of them flitter away, and we never speak of them again, but that's totally fine. We're doing another watch party this month. So please join us as we watch and chat live about Sunset Boulevard from 1950. And I mean chat live in the sense that it's a chat room. It's not video. So you guys don't have to worry about, you know, what you look like or coming on camera on a Friday night at the end of October. Making Um, sure you have the Dr. Scott (laughs) blur filter on. (laughs) Right, 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 right. (laughs) You just use the old cheesecloth trick, right? So the information is in our show notes, or you can jump on the live events page of our website and all the instructions are there. I know it probably feels a little convoluted if it's your first time doing that, but we walk you step-by-step what you need to do to join us on Prime Video through Amazon to watch that with us. So that should be fun. It's a good one. It's going to be a great, if you've never seen Sunset Boulevard, it really is sort of the epitome of noir, but from... A really a psych perspective. There's yeah. just so much going on and it's a, it's over the top in a really great way that is actually quite realistic and it hits so many psychological issues. It's perfect for Halloween, actually. I, I, almost as, I guess, noir is always perfect for Halloween, yeah. but this one's a really good one and Gloria Swanson is just amazing. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, last episode recap, episode 159 was the life and death of Ramon Navarro. In preparing for the episode, we we went one direction and and I completely missed a whole area of research, which thankfully I was able to hop on with some help from our listeners. We looked at the untimely death of one of Hollywood's earliest stars, Ramon Navarro. He was a Mexican immigrant, rose to stardom in the silent film era, and then transitioned to talking films, all while being forced to hide his sexuality due to the era and the strict studio system. And his tragic death came at the age of 69 at the hands of Paul Ferguson, a murderer who went on to create a bizarre post-prison alternative history of the event. It's a roller coaster ride. Yes. I'm so glad that you found that extra tidbit because I think very rarely do we sort of cut into an episode and say, here's some other stuff that we found. And when you found that, you did it. But it it was worth taking the extra time to add that in at the last minute for sure. Yeah, because the the surface stuff was actually misleading was actually yeah, true, like there was true. just there was like a whole other level to the story that needs to be heard and is quite shocking so let's get into our episode criminal profiling it. let me get into character hold on one second okay okay i'm not please <clears throat> do not expect me to do an accent here okay why do you think he removes their skins agent starling enthrall me with your acumen it excites him most serial killers keep some sort of trophies from their victims I didn't. No, no, you ate yours. All right. Acting. (laughs) So good, right? 
so we all know those lines from 1991's Silence of the Lambs, where an FBI cadet, Clary Starling, gets pulled away from her academy training to assist the head of the behavioral science unit in catching a serial killer, primarily by you know, yucking it up with captured serial killer genius Hannibal Lecter. And after that film came out, not only did it completely sweep the Oscars, but it set forth a generation of aspiring FBI agents, criminal profilers, and forensic psychologists. I was 12 or 13 at the time that my dad took me to see it in theaters. Thanks, dad. Maybe <laughs> not the most appropriate. Actually, my younger sister had seen it with her mom first. And I remember she she was like, so there's this scene where this guy like is dancing <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I got myself ready to be totally mortified in front of my dad while watching that together. But I am someone who completely ate it up. Even Shiloh at that age, I remember writing in my diary, future Shiloh, please go see this movie. It's amazing. <laughs> I wish I still had that. <laughs> How cool. Because I would take a picture of it and, and show you guys, but I was so impacted by that film and folded it into a lot of my professional career and had some really cool opportunities in trainings, especially once I got into law enforcement to kind of dive into that a little bit more. So my experience with the film was a little bit different. I mean, a good bit older, you know, I, I was like, I was already, I was working as a performer and I was in a a bus and truck show going all through. Oh, wow. And yeah, I was on the road for close to a year at that time. And it was playing and on the movie channel of all the hotels. So it was maybe like a year, year or two after it came out. And yeah. I mean, I'd seen it in the theaters, thought it was really great, but didn't really think much of it. I mean, like it was, it was cool. And I, I love Jodie Foster and oh, yeah. everybody was so good in it. But the amazing thing was, is that, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere with the same bunch of people over and over again, like, you know, it's a big family, but there's like people you hang out with and then you kind of get over things and then you have schisms and you come back. But I remember my roommate and I, Kane, and another roommate, Kevin, would watch the movie over and over again because it was the only thing to watch. I mean, yeah. I must have seen it close to at, at least 50 times, if not more. Okay. And so this, we've seen it about the same amount. <laughs> so this, but this thing happens where you're watching it and it's so shocking at first that you have this sort of ab reaction that it becomes humorous. Like you watch it the next yep. 10 times and it's like, then you're imitating Dr. Lecter, you know, you're right. really forcing the accent and really over, and then it starts getting creepy again. And then it gets funny again. And then it totally. gets actually more horrifying than you actually ever considered at the beginning. Yeah. Cause there's all these layers to it. And part of that is the writing and part of it is certainly the performances, but more than anything else, I think it's the directing. I think Demi's directing of that movie was just phenomenal. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, and the Buffalo Bill house, you can go visit it now. So we need to get, like get a group together and <laughs> go take a road trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we aren't really getting into the nitty gritty of crime details today, but we're going to mention several serial murders and victims of a mass bombing. And we're also going to do about a third of a dive into an absolutely bonkers story about one of the worst people that claimed to be a member of our profession, but actually wasn't. And then we're, I'm going to strongly encourage everyone to please go to the article in our show notes and read 
this article. I'm hoping, and I'm going to throw Here's one of those things I'm going to throw out, Dr. Shiloh. I want to get that journal, that article author on a live stream interview, if he would come yeah. and talk to us, because I had no idea about this guy and you were familiar with the story, but it was, I don't think either of us had any idea how bad it was. Yeah. So that was Dr. Scott's own trigger warning because he is incredibly triggered by that story. And it, it speaks to, you know, some of the other pet peeves we've had in the past, just people in crossover professions pretending to be something they're not. Right. So let me, we're going to start, let me, let me back up a bit and let's just get to a definition of what criminal profiling is, because it's sort of this buzz term since mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs. And anyway, it, it's it's complex, actually. Simple, but complex, and we'll go into the details. But the Sage Encyclopedia of Criminal Psychology explains and defines criminal profiling as, quote, a technique wherein the behavioral features apparent in a crime or series of crimes are assessed for the purposes of formulating a template of descriptive features concerning the likely perpetrator of the crime or crimes, close quote. Notice we're putting a lot of emphasis on likely perpetrator. Very, very important because generally this technique or investigative tool is used to assist investigators who are looking into the crimes of a violent nature, which are not readily solved by standard investigative procedures. The criminal profile that is developed regarding the unknown subject typically includes things like demographic features, offender's age, gender, level of education, marital status, vocation, and their personal interests. But it can also include information on where they might reside or work, or if they've perpetrated multiple crimes in the past. And then this profile can help support, it can equip investigators to better coordinate their investigations concerning existing suspects or use the information to help develop interview and interrogation questions that would then be used on a potential suspect, or that could then lead to the identification of new suspects. So criminal profiling is just another investigative tool. It is not a broad antidote for solving a crime, nor is it a tarot cards on a table. (laughs) Um, Although Hollywood wants you to think that way. They really do. Of course. And again, that's what people are coming into this with usually. So criminal profiling was not invented in 1991 when Silence of the Lambs came out, but actually has a very long history that can only compare with really the longstanding human fascination with criminal behavior. The book All That Is Wicked by Kate Winkler Dawson chronicles the capture of serial killer Edward Roloff. And in 1871, a parade of early mine hunters attempted to figure out what made Roloff tick. Writers, scholars, alienists all interviewed him in his jail cell. And based on what they wrote, modern evaluators likely would put him at a very high score on the psychopathy checklist. The founding father of criminology, Cesar Lombroso, wrote about techniques similar to what we know today as criminal profiling all the way back in 1878. Early examples of profiles were developed in the 1888 Whitechapel murders, also known as the Jack the Ripper murders, as well as in 1932 when Charles Lindbergh's child was kidnapped. So the problem with identifying psychology as a foundation to criminal profiling lies in the fact that there are so many differing theoretical paradigms in the field of psychology, right? Psychodynamic, behavioral, cognitive theories. Each of these rivaling approaches that try and explain a personality have their own inherent merits and limitations. 
and therefore can't really lend a definitive approach for an optimal method of profiling a person or crimes. What you're saying is so vitally important because if we didn't question this, we'd be stuck blaming mothers even today for every <laughs> yes. mentally ill man in the community. We'd still be diagnosing women as schizophrenogenic mothers. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that criminal profiling has sort of sidestepped this issue is to gather large amounts of data on various types of offenders and then to start sort of data mining for similarities in terms of demographics and offending behavior and other known behaviors either before or after the crime. However, as we have cautioned before in other episodes, when you talk about the rarest of the rare types of offenders like serial sexual murderers, and we I mean, just talked about this in our sexual sadism episode. The biopsychosocial sexual makeup of these individuals is so individualized that it could be irresponsible to compare them with each other. Hence, the reason we're diving into the research here today. So the first contemporary case of criminal profiling being used with success generally is highlighted throughout the story of the Mad Bomber. In 1957, psychiatrist James Bressel collaborated with the New York Police Department in seeking the subject who was responsible for planting over 30 bombs around the city in terminals, theaters, libraries, offices over a long span of 16 years. Dr. Bressel poured over crime scene photos and letters the suspect had sent in newspapers. He famously gave the profile that the offender would be, open quote, a heavy man, foreign-born, Roman Catholic, single. When you find him, chances are he will be wearing a double-breasted suit, buttoned, close quote. Very specific. We don't really know what went into the investigation from that profile, but police ended up identifying the suspect, George Metesky, who, when asked to get dressed to go to the police station for his interrogation, came out in a buttoned double-breasted suit. Okay. So I clearly remember reading this in John Douglas's Mindhunter book, sitting in my room in my little window seat. And I was like, holy shit, this stuff is magical. Like what? It was just my, like that little piece of him coming out in a double-breasted no, suit. I it, was like, what? But I love the word that you use the word magical because it does seem like that, right? Yeah. I mean, even a, a basic level clinician go heading into their master's program comes out with a skill set. And then you, you know, you go on and you lay training on top of it and people's mouths will drop open when mm -hmm. you just kind of make an observation. Well, you know, people who blank tend to do blank and you, it's just like you've turned into a wizard or something. Totally. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this is science and yeah. science and observation, but don't reach out through the computer and bitch slap me on this. But this is true. I have to admit, I have not, I have not read the Mindhunter books yet. Okay. Well, that's, that's not problematic. You're just fired. It's fine. <laughs> I get it. You know, like when I'm turning off though, I go like my downtime, especially because, and I know we say this ad nauseum, so I apologize, but you know, we have full-time jobs. Like this is yeah. the podcast yeah. is, is our side hustle, hobby, passion, but you know, I'm marinating in this stuff all day long. So sometimes I just want to turn off. And of course, <laughs> I'm not relaxing with true crime. I'm relaxing with like horror stories that, you know, people would be like, oh, oh my sure. God, how are you reading that? But I actually do want to get through it though. And what was the, the link that you sent me recently? It was a podcast that kind did they kind of diss Douglas a little bit? Oh, yeah. I, I think this was this is a really good sort of snarkier sister episode to listen to, to us, to this one today. But it's the podcast you're wrong about. And it's an episode on October 2nd. So it just came out not that long ago, but it's called Mind Hunting with Sarah Weinman. 
She has done some writings about this, but the the podcast hosted by Sarah Marshall, it's really good as far as like looking at the topic and the history of kind of our America's fascination with profiling. Right. It was good. I thought it was really, really well done and it's quick. And, you know, we don't always say, hey, go listen to this other podcast, but this one, this is a really good episode. And I think, you know, she approaches it like a true journalist, right? Right, right. Yeah. But I want you to know that I downloaded his first book on Kindle this week also because you can get it at the library, which is great. So I have it on electric, electric loan or electronic loan. But, you know, back to this whole background on profiling, you know, just like we see terrorists and mass casualty offenders, the case of the mad bomber started with huge foundational issue in profiling, a grievance, a grievance. It's grievances are very, very important in criminal psychology and forensic psychology and in just criminogenic thinking. It's a, it's a major, major foundational stone. And it turns out that Metesky was angry and resentful about events surrounding a workplace injury that he had suffered literally decades before 22 of his 33 bombs exploded, injuring 15 people. Totally hearkening back to our workplace violence episode, right? Yes. And every other threat assessment episode that we've done. So in 1974, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit was established. And between 1976 and 1979, as depicted in the David Fincher series Mindhunter, agents John Douglas and Robert Ressler interviewed 36 serial murderers and developed their Organized and disorganized typologies where organized offenders were deemed socially skilled individuals whose crimes were driven by fantasies and careful planning, leaving little evidence behind. Conversely, disorganized offenders were seen as loners whose impulsive, poorly planned crimes were reflected of their low level of social and occupational functioning. And we'll get back to their work more in depth when we look at the research on profiling. So then we started seeing an interesting intertwining of this investigative tool of profiling and the media. And of course, Silence of the Lambs came out in 1991. And as we mentioned previously, it absolutely swept the Academy Awards that year winning Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. I felt like my team won their Super Bowl that year. Yeah, I mean, the movie inspired tons of other entertainment projects about profiling. It also inspired academic institutions to start providing curriculum for a now very interested student population. And this was also about the time that we started seeing the very prolific CSI effect come into play Mm -hmm. with media depictions around forensic science. So there's actually like a really good thing about Silence of the Lambs. For one thing, it empowered young women like yourself to think, I could be a part of something like that. Although it's really fascinating what a great sort of precursor to patriarchy and internalized misogyny is woven into that storyline. Yes. I mean, it's just really powerful. That one scene where she schools her boss on, you know, like in a terrified way, she's like, am I going to be able to get by with this? But she explains it so well. He's like, yeah, okay. I kind of get what you're talking about. Well, I just think of like at the very beginning where, you know, almost I think the credits are still going and it's kind of showing her at the academy, but she gets into the elevator and she's just this tiny little petite woman. And there's all these other men, other FBI agents in there around her. And she's just kind of like looking up at them and they're kind of looking down at her. It's so such powerful imagery to where you're right. Like a young woman could be like, oh, she could do it. Right. I could do that. And before I forget, if anyone ever has the opportunity to see the stage musical 
version of Silence of the Lambs called Silence. I I I literally thought I was going to have a stroke. I was laughing. So it hard. was so good. It's filthy, funny, and hilarious. And like, there's so many great parts to it, but also the actress that just comes in and out of it playing Jodie Foster's roommate <laughs> yes. is just genius the way it's written. Oh, anyway, that's been a long time. It's been wow. so long since I saw that. And I saw uh, Davis Gaines, who was the original Phantom in Phantom of the Opera yeah, yeah. playing Hannibal Lecter. And he was just genius. He was so good. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yes. Okay, back to I, I'm like, I have all these recommendations. I want to do all this side talk about yeah. it. So kind of going on with looking at like profiling in the media, in our timeline here in 1996, you had the Unabomber investigation really right. come to a head. And that was, I think when it came to, you know, the, the larger community's awareness, primarily by him manipulating newspapers to get his message out. And then in turn, the FBI using the media as part of their, their investigation strategy, really to apprehend him. Also, this is what some people term sort of like the birth of the manifesto once that manifesto was printed in newspapers. Yeah. And then in 2002, we saw a huge rise in talking heads in the media regarding the Beltway sniper attacks. And Dr. Mark Zellig wrote on this topic about the lack of ethical restraint by these self-styled profilers, you know, that were only there to serve their own interests, their own career interests. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. One such talking head went on television and stated, well, thank God they never killed a kid. And 40 minutes after that live interview was aired, a child was shot. And mm -hmm. yeah, this, this whole scenario just seems very, very black mirror to me. And I don't right. know if you remember about the Beltway Sniper, but do you, did you ever watch the Montel Williams show? Yeah, occasionally. So it was like a, it was on for a long time, yeah. even well into his illness. I think he has MS. Yes. He got hit with MS, but he had on, you know, there were some like tabloidy type episodes. He was like a, I think he was one of the big fans of, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. The psychic that Oh, that oh, died oh, recently. Oh. Sylvia Brown. Yes. <laughs> he was really big on her. And Sylvia Brown was like, I just, I won't even spend any time on her. <laughs> okay. However, what I do find interesting, and I know that this pisses off some viewers because we've gotten actually angry emails about this, which I completely respect everybody's opinion. I find the idea that, you know, some clairvoyant predictions do come true and have been noted, but there was a very, very well-known clairvoyant named Elizabeth Barron at that time. Mm. And she was on Montel Williams. And she said she was the one that named the color of the vehicle, the type of vehicle. And she said, there's two and one is older and one is younger. No kidding. And it got no, it got even after the, the guys were caught. Yeah. There was no going back to it. That clip is still around on YouTube. It's fascinating mm, stuff. Wow. Anyway, again, just very, very black mirror. And I, I have a real problem again, like you were saying earlier, one of my pet peeves is know what you're talking about and stay in your lane. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it can be hard. It can be, I mean, you know, it's tough to stay in your lane when you kind of feel like, what is it that they want? Am I going to say something that's even halfway interesting that the audience is going to connect with? But that's when you absolutely should be staying in your lane. And if they don't use it, they don't use it. Yeah. <laughs> or, or being able to tell people like you and I have done in interviews going, we, we can't comment on that. 
Yeah. I mean, we can't, I, it's not that I can't, I could comment on it, but it wouldn't be, I have to frame it for a number of reasons in, in a situation such as you're describing, a perpetrator may very well be acting in this way because of these mm. particular factors yeah. without saying it's this person, you know, because it's not definitive. It just isn't. Right. Right. So I think as everyone's starting to see here, most profiling is done by trained law enforcement officers. The term criminal profiler and forensic psychologist are not at all synonymous, but I think most folks picture a mix of the two, especially since Hollywood likes to blur the lines a lot. And I know it's a distinction you and I make. Yeah. We get this question a lot. Inherently, when someone's interviewing us about our jobs, they'll ask about criminal profiling. So we have to kind of explain the differences there. And I do want to say, you know, with this primarily being a job, if it is an actual job and job description of a professional, that it is a law enforcement officer. I know many FBI behavioral analysis folks who go into this work, get assigned into these jobs, and they get higher education in psychology, in criminology, and they really know their stuff. There have been more than one trainings or conferences that I've been to where there's been profilers up there and they're going to start talking about, you know, like sexual offenders and crimes against children. And I'm like, okay, what do you got? Cause I'm very familiar with this research. And then they're spouting the research and I'm like, yes, thank yeah. you. I'm so glad. So some of you may also have heard the term investigative psychology. I was trained in a particular type of investigative psychology, specifically providing psychological consultation on homicides about six years ago. It's when I, right around the time that I started the job I'm in now. And it's my understanding that investigative psychology was an area of practice carved out because quote unquote profiling was a misleading term and wasn't really well received in courts, particularly here in the US. Right. That word has a lot of baggage profile yes. profiling within law enforcement and rightly so. Right, right. Other alternatives have been put forth as well. For instance, in England, the term behavioral investigated advice has been suggested as something that's more accurate and as a way to sort of pull away from the mystique reputation of profiling. Therefore, psychologists who took on this role really suggested terms like homicide consultation or a form of investigative psychology. And in 2002, Taylor and some other authors described investigative psychology as, quote, a growing discipline that studies the complex interaction between the offender, victim, and environment with the purpose of developing models of behavior that can be used to provide actuarial support to police inquiry, end quote. So at its core, investigative psychology is consultation, generally Again, going to be provided by a psychologist or psychiatrist on behaviors of an unknown offender or perpetrator that may be helpful to an investigation or perhaps consultation on interview tactics and questions that could be helpful to elicit information using psychological and sociological theories. Yeah, I like that idea that it's consultation. So that's weird that the, the British name would be advice. Mm, that's so yeah. weird. Like put consultation in there. True. But I mean, this is I love how you've lined this up because this is a great example of how our field continues to expand and evolve, even just within this particular pie wedge of forensics. I love yeah. that. So within this model of investigative psychology, examples of common referral questions posed to the consulting psychologist might be, how do the actions of the offender speak to the characteristics 
of the offender. Can you suggest an investigation strategy to increase the likelihood of case resolution? Are there any special considerations for interrogating this offender? Why has the killer or rapist stopped the behavior? What was the motivation for the crime? Did the defendant premeditate the murder? Is the criminal behavior consistent with a suspect's history and psychological makeup? So you can see that within these questions, a mental health professional really has to be aware of their role, their level and ease with their expertise and to not get in over their heads. Very important right there. They are not the investigators. They're not the attorneys. And they have to be mindful of the potential involvement in civil cases that might then overlap with the criminal cases. And that can get really expensive, by the <laughs> yes. way. That is why everybody needs to be really careful with what they say. In other words, look, you know, the consulting psychologist needs to stay in their lane and speak only to their expertise that has evidence-based backing so that you can avoid these really dangerously thorny ethical issues. Right. So the other thing to consider is that law enforcement can be highly susceptible to anything a mental health professional suggests, which is understandable, right? We come with an expertise that they are happy to default to in a lot of our partnerships, but we need to be very mindful about how our information is used and of the confirmation biases that might come with that. Yes. It's not dissimilar at all to when I'm consulting in a crisis negotiation capacity, right? Like I need to know my role, offer my opinions, but not cross over into any areas that would conflict with my ethical guidelines or anything that's going to cause harm. I mean, there are some situations where I might have to disengage because the decisions they're starting to make conflict a little bit with my yeah. ethical guidelines. I, personally, I have not in six years, thank goodness, been on scene where that has happened. But I wrote an article about this and I have taken other accounts of where psychologists have had to step back, disengage, and then maybe re-engage again at a later time. And that's that's the appropriate thing to do here. Yeah, I remember in our first live event when our bestie, Rebecca Sebastian, came out to L.A., we we had a really sweet group of people that showed up and, mm -hmm. you know, we were, uh, since that was our first event, we didn't really know how to publicize or anything. So it was, it was a small, it was a small venue. It was great to kind of dip our toe into the water. And one of my dearest friends for literally decades, although she doesn't look like it, um, Michelle Zeitlin, <laughs> yeah. Michelle Zeitlin is a former choreographer here in LA and she is a powerhouse of a manager and producer with Morzap Productions really, really impressive woman who has done amazing things. And she showed some interest. She goes, oh, well, I want to come. I want to see you guys. I haven't seen this before. And when we were, I was explaining something to her and her boyfriend and she goes, but what if you're wrong? Oh, and I thought that like, I mean, I was, I was kind of taken aback by that because it was so right. And mm -hmm. it made me think about how many times I've had law enforcement when we're doing a consultation and they never question, right? Like, and yeah. I, like I, so I kind of, to our law enforcement peers out there, it's okay when you're consulting with us wizards <laughs> or the people <laughs> that you think are the wizards, like, no, yeah. to go, well, so what's the other side of this? How can we look at another perspective? I mean, we as professionals should be challenging ourselves to do that as well. Yep. But I'll tell you, our professional peers, the ones that really piss me off in this field are the ones that don't do that. It's mm -hmm. very, they present as very cut and dried all the time. I think it kind of goes into this thing of investigative procedure. The way detectives are taught things does have this area of 
synthesis of intuition, but I think that mainly it's also based on some really solid rubrics about how you investigate a scene, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of practical information that comes into the training of a detective. And so they can fall into black and white thinking sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that they can project that onto us too, that it's black and white when we know that understanding human behavior is just like so much bigger. I mean, like you were saying, psychology or profiling can really offer these valuable perspectives. And what I think is um, important is it can open up a larger discussion of the understanding of the perpetrator. Again, this is why big ego and psychology are not a good mix. It's why I admire Dr. Reed Malloy. He just seems sure. to be so humble in spite of his brilliance. And maybe yeah. I'm projecting onto him. I don't know. Maybe he's a Maybe he's bad to waiters or doesn't tip or something. I highly, <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. I highly, highly doubt, doubt it. it. Yeah. Highly doubt it. But I think you're right, especially in such stark contrast to other forensic mental health professionals that have had their ego quite inflated due to just the work that they do. You know, we've seen those that have risen really high and fallen really far because they step I, in their own shit, usually on the stand. <laughs> I, I get it. I, and I'm, you know, they will remain nameless for mainly for the potential for civil action against <laughs> me. So I'm not going to take that chance, but what's fascinating is in my, you know, I don't, I haven't had a brief career. I would say that like for I'm mid career, I'm not mm -hmm. midlife, I'm past mm -hmm. midlife, but I'm mid career, I would say for someone in this profession. And I've, I've seen several of the mighty topple really badly. Yeah. And you think, I mean, I've been times where I'm like, boy, this puts me in an ethical and a moral quandary. Should I report this person? Should I, should I, should I? And by the mm -hmm. time I make a decision, they've already dug their own graves and jumped in with both feet and the yeah. dirt's being <laughs> the dirt is covering them. <laughs> so the whole modern day investigative psychology emerged really pretty significantly in 1986 with David Cantor's pivotal contributions in London during investigations that involved a series of severe sexual assaults and murders. And Cantor's approach grew out of fundamental principles that were derived from social and evolutionary psychology. And these really proved instrumental in aiding the police to refine their list of previously identified suspects. So they already have this database. Yes. And now I keep using this word perspective. They have another perspective or filter to use within these demographically identified suspects. And during this era, other researchers and psychologists had already begun exploring other aspects of psychology applicable to detective work, like deception detection and interview techniques. So in follow-up years, the evolution of investigative psychology led to the emergence of geographic profiling as a prominent offshoot, which is fascinating. Like I, in, in the building where I work, there's a police force analyst who's mm -hmm. like a master's level computer genius. And I, I look at him looking at a giant wall size screen and he's like, oh no, I can tell you exactly where this person's going to be. Yep. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. We should have a geographic profiler on our behind the couch. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing what can happen with this technology. And I mean, I guess maybe there is some concern that you don't want to get too reliant on computer generated data, but yeah. as long as it complements psychological theories or behavioral theories about how offenders tend to commit crimes 
within the area that they're familiar with, I think it can be very, very helpful. Agreed. So let's look at the actual research on the validity of criminal profiling. So unfortunately, there's a shortage of scientifically grounded research that that can firmly, firmly attest to the overall validity of profiling. And you even used the word earlier, tradecraft. And when you have a tradecraft that doesn't have this significantly robust data set to back it up, you're going to find people that will argue just as passionately for and against this method. It makes me think of Rorschach, like there Rorschach oh is gosh. so contested. So controversial. And especially like the main, like I remember in our Rorschach class when I was in my doctoral work, you know, the guy who was teaching it, who was brilliant, came in, held up our textbook and said, there's a big problem with this textbook. There's an entire chapter that has been disproven and we have to go back and rethink everything. But it's important not to throw out everything that we do know that is scientifically validated. And then you go on to use this tool and it's like, you talk about feeling like you're doing something magical, <laughs> right? Like a Rorschach. I don't know because my assessment professor who was brilliant, she said, we will not be learning that garbage. So okay. I never learned the Rorschach. <laughs> so, well, but I, I mean, it goes to show. But I get it. I mean, yeah. So here you have two great, brilliant professionals and they each yeah. have like completely different perspectives on it. Yeah. Crazy stuff. So it's not as if there hasn't been research done on criminal profiling. However, the deficit can be attributed to the wide variety of methodological difficulties in trying to objectively measure the accuracy of the outcome, which is exactly what you need to prove for a measure or tool to show that it has validity. Most of the sources of literature on criminal profiling are derived from a variety of anecdotal accounts, case studies, which provide a lot of quality-rich information and great examples of application. There are bright spots when we look at the research out there. Quasi-experimental designs have been utilized with various groups of participants to perform profiling exercises based on previously solved cases. So this is a great way to conduct a study because the exercises can then be objectively measured. The research has shown that suitably qualified individuals or trained profilers are in fact capable of proficiently predicting the characteristics of unknown offenders in a wide variety of crime modalities. Yeah. So another area that needs more research concerning criminal profiling is looking at the utility of the actual criminal profiles. We first have to be able to prove that the profiles are accurate and valid, and then we would want to look at how efficient they are in the resolution of a crime and how helpful they are for investigators. So if you're really just kind of breaking this down step by step, you just said, you know, there is research that says that if you're trained at this, that there's some good iterator reliability of how people are doing it, but then you need to look at the profiles and then you need to look at like what one of my other professors used to say, the so what factor, like, is this actually contributing to what we want it to contribute to. Most of the research in this area comes from self-report surveys of police personnel asking about how productive they believe the profiles were in their cases. And as you guys know from listening to us forever, self-report surveys are great for gathering data, but not optimal for making confident conclusions. And just to kind of button up this bit about the research specifically on criminal profiling, most Western jurisdictions throughout the world share the view that 
criminal profiling is inadmissible as a form of expert witness evidence. Again, quoting the Sage Encyclopedia on Criminal Psychology, quote, the basis for this rejection is its probabilistic foundations. The fundamental doctrine to the admission of evidence and legal proceedings is that the submitted evidence possesses a probative nexus with the facts being judged before a court. And this principle necessitates that the probative value of any evidence submitted before a court must outweigh any prejudicial impact that the evidence may also hold. Okay, keep break that down. We're not attorneys. We're not attorneys. That's really dense. (laughs) So what they're saying is that using criminal profiling as an example, an accused person may share the same characteristics with the created profile, but that just doesn't hold enough weight to be relevant. So, you know, with DNA, you need a certain amount of markers that need to be there, right? Right. That's that's obviously much different, but I mean, just to kind of get it in our heads, there could be other people with some, like some markers on there that are similar, but profiling is just not fine-tuned enough. And if an expert witness, such as a person of great authority, like a profiler from a government agency gets on the stand, it would give more weight to a jury than they should actually consider based on yeah. the, the research. That's that's fascinating. So it seems like what overall the cons- the current consensus on this is that IP and profiling can be really, really helpful in identifying a pool of suspects mm-hmm. and narrowing down a pool of suspects. And then there's a lot of data that can come off of that about victim profiling and all sorts of things you can pull about, even like sociological factors, which would be fantastic, but you can't get it up on the stand. So we're going to go back to Dr. David Cantor. I mentioned him when referring to the very early days of investigative psych in the 1980s. He really took a microscope to Douglas and Ressler's work on the organized versus disorganized offender article that they had drafted after completing their interviews. So it was a pretty good study, 36 individuals. It encompassed 25 serial murders and 11 sexual murderers who were responsible for a variety of homicides, including singular double homicides, as well as spree killings. So by using what is known as a categorization method, the analysis disclosed 24 organized murders and 12 disorganized murders within that sample. I wish the sample was bigger, but it still Mm -hmm. is very fascinating. So the organized offender and for people out there that are in school or working in other areas of psychology, this organized versus disorganized is not what we would look at in terms of diagnostic criteria for people on the psychotic spectrum or the bipolar spectrum. So yeah, it's a completely different paradigm. Yeah. Because that 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 verbiage is used for that as well. So and it's it's confusing if you're in, in our field, but the organized offender exhibits certain characteristics, including being Later in the birth order, so clearly I'm an organized offender, (laughs) experiencing inconsistent parental discipline, huge thing in family development issues. That's like inconsistent parental discipline is very, very bad. Possessing average or above average intelligence and displaying substandard work performance. Very socially adept. The organized murderer typically cohabitated with a partner. Huge, huge piece of information that came out from that data set. Mm -hmm. Very, very important currently. And prior to the murder, the perpetrator often reported feelings of anger, 
followed by a sense of calm and relaxation post-crime. The crime scene of the organized murder tended to display a sense of order before, during, and after the offense. The victim was frequently a stranger, the selection being based on specific traits of the individual or maybe the location where they encountered him. And the organized murderer's behavior and crime scene patterns often indicated obsessive and compulsive tendencies. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So in what we consider to be a striking contrast, we have the disorganized offender, which Douglas and Ressler also wrote this to be a very striking contrast, right? So this offender typically had below average intelligence, was born earlier in the birth order, and experienced severe parental discipline. This is a really key piece of information that dovetails well into a pretty profound already existing trove of information regarding family system dynamics. So hugely interesting. And this person is usually in a state of confusion and distress during the murder. The disorganized murderer was found to exhibit social inadequacy and sexual incompetence. Crimes committed by the disorganized offender were characterized by a sudden and unplanned action without a strategy to avoid detection. Facial destruction and sexually sadistic acts were commonly observed post-murder with these offenders. They also usually left the victim in the same position as at the time of death, making no effort to conceal the body or stage the body or anything like that. And the study did incorporate case illustrations, visual documentation to show you know, some of these behaviors of the offender. In his writings, and I just thought this was a very big claim, but Ressler opines, facets of the criminal's personality are evident in his offense. Like a fingerprint, the crime scene can be used to aid in identifying the murderer. Yeah. I know. Is I it like, though? Is it? Is <laughs> it, is it like or, or, or maybe I should say, is it always? I mean, in some cases, mm. yes, he's making a point. But again, that's yeah. sort of, to me, teetering on that line of be careful about, you know, making too broad of assumptions. Well, it's kind of like, it's we see how it's sort of building the lore of criminal profiling. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's it's a it's a juicy quote. Yeah, yeah that helps do go. that. So Cantor and his colleagues then went on to publish a paper entitled The Organized Disorganized Typology of Serial Murder: Myth or Model. So in that study, Cantor took psychometric procedures and then he applied them to examining his own sample of the serial killers and he looked at 39 specific data points of serial killing based on the crime scene of a hundred serial killers. And so this is what his findings were. The analysis revealed that there are no discrete subset of offense characteristics that can be regarded as distinctly related to the organization or disorganization of the killings. Instead, there appears to be a subset of organized features typical of most serial killings with disorganized features being much more rare and not co-occurring as a distinct type. That is a great quote mm-hmm. because he's actually talking about stats and it's not a juicy quote that then leads to a lot of conjecture. That's pretty clear right there. Yeah. So essentially Cantor saying when you drill down and apply robust methodologies to the musings of Douglas and Ressler, the typologies don't hold up as distinctly as we would like. And his research calls out the consequences of using non-data-driven information. However, the findings of the 
magical behavioral science profilers grew to really be the golden standard for homicide detectives that they ended up training all across the country. And the disorganized, organized distinction was eventually applied more broadly to all sexual homicides with the publication of the Crime Classification Manual in 1992, where previously it had only been addressing lust murderers and sexually sadistic killings. The Crime Classification Manual was also authored by Douglas and Ressler, along with Anne and Alan. Burgess. In the crime classification manual, Douglas and his colleagues introduced a third category called the mixed offender. And here is where they acknowledge that some offenders cannot be easily discriminated against as organized or disorganized, but they rely on outside explanations for such kind of muddy behaviors, I guess. For instance, there may be more than one offender, or there may be unanticipated events that the offender had not planned for. So for a, like a, a media presentation, think of the times in the series Dexter, when he's got everything laid out, he's got his kill room completely duct taped up, everything contained. Very organized. Very, very organized. <laughs> and then, you know, somebody happens just to wander into the ab abandoned warehouse where he's doing it, right? right? It would happen every once in a while. And of course, you know, he would always adjust. And sorry, that person's probably dead too, because now they've seen yeah, too much. Exactly. <laughs> too bad. But Cantor went on to note that the mere fact that they felt the need to introduce a third category raises some very fundamental questions about the empirical nature of their findings about the original dichotomy. Now, to be fair, Cantor had also been critical of the seven typologies of serial killers developed by Holmes and Deeper in 1988. But this isn't an episode based on serial killer research, so we're not going to cover those. But just to reiterate that Cantor's work is really worth a read if you're interested, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah. Another examination of criminal profiling and its origins were addressed in the Vanderbilt Law Review in 2008 by author James George. And this goes back to something that we said earlier, but I just wanted to put this in here. He was looking at profiling in terms of the claim that this is offered as scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge yeah. and how that should be addressed in the legal system. So just to cut to the chase here, again, George argued that offender profiling should not be admissible as expert testimony in the United States. And it, it is a very, you know, legal document and review that he writes. It's very well done and really thoroughly goes through, you know, comparing it to the Dauber standard and some other ways in which we address expert witness testimony. We'll have that linked on our website as well. Yeah. So let's talk about the people that we unabashedly cannot tolerate in our own field. Dr. Shiloh, take it away. <laughs> in Coquille, a small Oregon coastal town, 15-year-old Leah Freeman disappeared on the night of June 28, 2000, sparking a community-wide search effort. Despite a $10,000 reward and extensive police efforts, Leah's body was tragically discovered a month later, severely decomposed. However, the killer remained elusive as the initial police response treated Leah as a runaway. And the FBI and state police intervention 
unfortunately came too late. Suspicion fell on her 18-year-old boyfriend, Nick McGuffin, due to their arguments, his car switch on the night she disappeared, and a failed polygraph test. But solid physical evidence to support this hunch was lacking. So thank you for introducing us to this mystery already existing. We're going to be pulling heavily for the next section of our, today's broadcast or today's podcast from an article that we're posting in our show notes that was authored by David Gauvey Herbert. It is an excellent, excellent takedown of somebody who really, really was, should never have been allowed in our field. Pretty, pretty strong example. So let's go back to January, 2010, following up after that disappearance. A new investigative team sought out a group of individuals that called themselves the Vidoke Society. It's a supposedly a group of elite investigators, and they wanted assistance in solving this cold case of Leah Freeman's murder. Richard Walter, the co-founder of the Vidoke Society and a renowned quote unquote criminal profiler, presented a profile suggesting that Leah's boyfriend was the likely killer. The boyfriend was subsequently arrested, tried and sentenced to prison, but his conviction would later be overturned. However, Walter's credibility as a profiler was questionable, as he had a history of promoting fake credentials and involvement in cases he barely had any real information about. And it led in the end to a federal judge labeling him publicly as a charlatan. That's a big deal when a judge mm. comes out and says, Good. you're full of shit. Walter's track record of deception and his willingness to exploit the fragmented criminal justice system allowed him to continue operating as a consultant, charging substantial fees for his services across the United States. Journalists further enhanced his reputation in books and television shows, drawing in desperate parents seeking closure for unsolved murders. Walter's self-deception was such that he seemed to forget that he was fully engaged in his own con. He just fully inhabited this role of being a celebrated criminal profiler. It's so gross. Okay. Walter's public image and professional history are riddled with discrepancies and falsehoods. As early as 1982, he began promoting deceptive credentials and a fabricated work background. He asserted his involvement in solving murder cases, even when his actual participation was limited or non-existent, going so far as to claim credit for an event that may not have transpired at all. Astonishingly, these falsehoods could not prevent him from serving as an expert witness in trials across the country. Walter's specialty lay in providing criminal profiles that incriminated defendants by attributing motives to them that could result in more severe charges with his testimony then influencing juries. After a while, the convictions in at least three murder cases where he had testified were subsequently overturned, leading that federal judge to call him a charlatan in 2003. He repeatedly over years declined interview requests and his actions combined with his increasingly strange behaviors cast a cloud of suspicion around him. And despite all this increased scrutiny and documentation of many of his inconsistencies and really outright transgressions of the legal system, he continued to operate without any kind of restraints continuing to charge fees of up to $1,000 a day as a consultant. And this is 20 years ago when that was even oh, more money, Lord. right? And yeah. does this sound familiar? It sounds like, you know, some of the other cases we've talked about where people, you know, pose, it's like that con man impersonation, right? Yeah, no, 100%. And it's just, there's just families across the country being 
conned and devastated by this man. Like medical doctors' ability to cover the trails of their mistakes by moving from hospital to hospital, the often fragmented nature of America's criminal justice system allowed him to commit perjury in one state and then move on to another. Frustratingly, looking back on the timeline over his career, we can now see that journalists even played a role in cleansing his reputation through television shows and books, through the very true crime genre that we're a part of, and grieving parents desperate for closure and the unsolved murders of their children sought his assistance. Walter became so immersed in the persona of a celebrated criminal profiler that he seems to have forgotten he was perpetrating a deception. Right. And I I, I think it's, I want to emphasize here why we've said that twice, mm-hmm. because it really does speak to the narcissism in this particular individual. So he is creating a reality as he's going and he's gotten yeah. away with things so much that there's a lot of implication in looking at this from a, from a wider perspective that he really believed his own bullshit or continues to believe his own bullshit. So we do have some things that we know about him. He completed his bachelor's and master's degree in psychology from Michigan State University in 1975. And then at the age of 33, he accepted sort of an entry level, low paying position as a lab assistant in the LA County Medical Examiner's Office. And from the records, it looks like that his responsibilities, his duties there mainly consisted of washing test tubes. That's kind of an entry level. That's what you do when you start out, right? He supposedly considered pursuing a doctoral program, but then he opted instead for a job as a staff psychologist in 1978 at Maquette Branch Prison in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Notably, he was able to see patients without any further qualifications. I I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's something, though, that we've touched on in previous episodes about the prison system, and this dovetails in with sort of how you can present yourself. The rules now in the U.S. are very clear. You are not a psychologist unless you are licensed in the state or a state in which you're practicing. Mm -hmm. That's the rule. It didn't always exist that way. And it was up until I think like 15, 18 years ago, where in two states in the U.S., you were able to call yourself a psychologist at the master's level. Mm-hmm. That is fully gone. There's no place in the U.S. where you can do that anymore. Except for school psychologists, I think. I think school psychologists, yes. School psychologists or the only other carve out is in correctional settings. You can call yourself a staff right. psychologist if you're not licensed yet, but you have to be pursuing your hours and you have to have completed a doctoral degree. So yeah, a school psychologist is a an L is like an L E, no an L E. What's that called? An L an E an E D, a doctor mm-hmm. of education. But they also get training in counseling, so they're allowed to be called a yeah. school psychologist. Yeah. Anyway, so again, as people have heard before, that's <laughs> one of my pet peeves. Yeah. Screech. <laughs> yeah. 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 Interesting stuff. His professional relationships with prisoners were. Shocking, problematic. This often involved interviews conducted through a closed steel door. This is not uncommon in incarceration settings. However, true professionals understand that they are getting minimal information and are careful to draw conclusions in these limited settings. Apparently, not Walter, as he faced legal challenges, including a lawsuit from an inmate who claimed Walter had refused to pass along a dictionary sent by his mother. Two psychiatric experts and a federal judge questioned his ability to diagnose mental disorders and provide basic mental health services. And after these multiple events, he was inexplicably 
not fired, yeah. but had his responsibilities reduced to primarily conducting intake interviews with inmates, a task that he referred to as meatball stuff. But in spite of no real background in this area, Walter began presenting himself as an expert in the criminal mind with frequent presences at conferences hosted by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. That's a real thing. Wow. It's a real legit you organization. However, we're talking now not 10 years ago, not 20 years ago. We're talking 30 plus years ago, right? Profiling in particular was in high demand during this period. And the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit was really transitioning from this sort of fringe area that people didn't know about to mainstream coverage and mainstream knowledge by the general public. And they were consulting on literally hundreds of cases per year. So this environment attracted significant personalities. And Walter, in 1982, became a full member of AAFS. And that is a credential that holds a lot of influence. I mean, and even today, I've you and I have talked about this. Like, mm -hmm. There are two branches I would go to. It'd be like either board of professional psychology or board of forensic psychology. And it's a lot of work now. And yeah. part of it is because of all these bullshit artists over the years. And it should be hard. It should be hard to be a board certified anything, right? Of course. But clearly back then, the bar was a lot lower. I mean, they were not checking credentials at all. And that same year, he <laughs> began testifying in court as an expert witness. Right. And again, just immersing himself into this role. During another high-profile case in Los Angeles County, Walter presented a fabricated resume falsely claiming expertise in over 5,000 murder cases at the LA County Medical Examiner's Office. I mean, maybe he washed 5,000 test tubes. I, I, <laughs> oh my God, you're right. That's it. I mean, He is an right? expert at washing those damn tubes. Expert. These are sparkly tubes, let me tell you. <laughs> along with several other bogus qualifications, such as being an adjunct lecturer at Northern Michigan University and publishing criminology papers. And in his testimony, he diagnosed the defendant with an obscure impulse called peakerism, suggesting it was responsible for a particular type of lust murder. Just as an aside, that isn't a real thing, especially to make that link. I have actually toyed with the idea of looking at peakerism and what research or research, what research is or isn't out there on it. But well, let's just say this, that took at it and the ran time, with it. He took at the it time, there was nothing like that. Yeah. So he just yeah. now there might be something that we can post hoc 30 years later, find yeah. something. That... By 1987, he presented himself as a top profiler and his entertaining lectures like lust, arson and rape, a factorial approach gained popularity among audiences, including one from a 1989 conference hosted by the Association of Police Surgeons of Great Britain, which remarked that Walter's story was best heard from his own mouth to, quote, preserve its uniqueness. Yeah, which is problematic. I don't think, and I think that they didn't mean anything negative by it, which is problematic. Like right. It should no, be, they were like, like you need to hear this live. <laughs> if you're being dazzled by somebody's brilliance, you're also being baffled by their bullshit, right? You're not really able to see that this is person. This is a person, just, just a showman. And apparently he was like eccentric and weird and like a chain smoker and, you know, a big talker. He was really your typical snake oil salesman. 
So he and his two colleagues, one of them a retired federal agent, um, went on to form the Vidoc Society that we mentioned earlier. And they took its name from Eugene Francois Vidoc, a 19th century French criminal turned detective. Now, while some early members had held impressive law enforcement positions. Others were advocates of dubious fields like polygraphy. And I know like we have friends that are polygraphers, so let's be careful how they say this. Polygraphy can be a valuable tool, but again, not court admissible. And then also statement analysis. Initially, the group focused on historical cases, but it soon turned to more of the recent unsolved murders. So criminal profiling, like we were saying at the beginning of the episode, now is exploding because of Silence of the Lambs, leading the Vidoke Society to now gain media attention. Walter's presence in the courtroom grew. And although there were some smart people out there waving their hands and questioning his credibility, he just continued to operate because he was supported so much by victims' families that were looking for some kind of answer. So they supported him and clearly like a real need for attention. So he was just getting all of this validation from constantly being on stage. You know, it might have yeah. well have been a wannabe actor, right? But he was also doing this while he was still working in the Michigan correctional system. And, you know, there were some people that would laugh at him. But there was a lot of critique, but nobody was taking him down. Yeah, yeah. And his work and interest began to center on sex crimes, eventually with a significant focus on homosexuality. In some cases, he attributed crimes to what he termed homosexual panic, a theory that we know is real, but he used to categorize and explain various murders, kind of like he was now starting to just kind of look through this lens with everything. Like it was his new flavor of the week of what he was talking about. There's a difference because his version of homosexual panic was someone killing because they're homosexual as opposed what? to that <laughs> was, was my that's what my understanding was because we we today have and yeah, that can be a defense i mean it's not yeah. so much a solid defense anymore it's like oh that guy was coming on to me so i i killed him yeah in it's response. a bullshit defense <laughs> yeah where is. he was trying i mean he was really had some issues in his own sexuality or his own understanding of sexuality. But you know what? I'm yeah. going to look some more into that. If anybody out there has more research on this, let us know. So his work and interest began to center on sex crimes eventually with a significant focus, it seems at times, on homosexuality. And the story of Walter's questionable expertise and motivations included cases where he offered opinions based on really limited evidence, often focusing on sexual deviancy as a motive, despite disagreements from law enforcement officials on those cases and who were also experts in their own right. Rick Wooten, one of the Texas law enforcement officers that worked with Walter on a case, is quoted as saying, quote, it seemed like it didn't matter what the case was. He just thought it was some kind of sexual deviancy or homosexuality, which I disagreed with, close quote. Yeah, like the traveling lobotomy circuses of the early 20th century, Walter kept taking on freelance work. He would arrive in small towns around the U.S. to share his professional knowledge, and his arrival would be the top of the local headlines. He reported in at least seven separate cold cases to have shared with the local reporters and delivered his self-created catchphrase that was a warning to the killer out there in the community that he was uh, warning them that, hey, he's on the scene now. They're going to get arrested pretty soon. And his statement would be, don't buy any green bananas. Oh, God. Get over yourself. <laughs> wow. So much to unpack there. But 
Yes. Walter's history goes on to present a legal and morally problematic narrative beyond what we've laid out in this timeline, with him being responsible for scads of incarcerations on his false expert witness. Despite overturning of the majority of these convictions, Walter is still active as of April 2023 with recent speaking engagements. In October, he spoke at the North Carolina Homicide Investigators Conference. And in 2019, he advertised his ability for work as a profiler. And this story has so much detail that we are really only scratching the surface here. Again, we highly recommend a fascinating article written in New York Magazine's Division Intelligencer by author David Gavi Herbert. And we will have that link for you. But man, still at it, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's like we were saying before we started recording this morning, the article was just really jaw dropping. So mm-hmm. it's it's almost like a novella. It's so well written. I just yeah. really encourage people to read it. Okay. So let's look at a couple places in which, you know, profiling, well, we're going to look at a case in which they got it right. Okay. And then one in which they got it wrong. So we can just kind of put out there how this can very much be a tool, but again, kind of giving it too much importance is certainly cautioned. And kind of a famous story that John Douglas tells in one of his books is kind of akin to that mad bomber, like wow moment. He was brought in to assist the investigation of some unsolved murders that occurred along hiking paths in really heavily wooded areas around San Francisco. And Douglas presented a profile to this crowded room of investigators and sheriff's deputies up there and said his profile read something like this, a white blue collar worker in his low to mid thirties with an IQ well above normal. And he also added that the offender would have a background of bedwetting, fire starting and cruelty to animals. And then he kind of gives this pregnant pause and adds another thing. The killer will have a speech impediment. And Douglas even talks about how (laughs) the room really reacted in a skeptic manner with one of the deputies even saying something like, what did you come to that conclusion? Because the stab wounds look like stutter stabs. Like, just what are you trying to sell us here? Right. So, of course, you know, that Douglas wrote about this himself. He goes on to talk about the police arresting a suspect who really closely resembled the characteristics that he gave in that profile all the way down to the fact that he had a lifelong stutter. So if you go and you read Douglas's books, wrestlers books, one that I, I can personally advocate for is Roy Hazelwood. I know we, I've talked about him before. He was also in this OG behavioral science unit, lovely, lovely man. I found him each training I went to of his to be very humble. Um, he has since passed away. But he has a couple of books that are written in the same style as Douglas and Wrestler about actual cases. But I can say that, you know, he just seemed like a very good person and was really interested in helping investigators learn. So pick up The Evil That Men Do. It's a great book by him. I love that you brought it back to that point of, you know, presenting as humble, which I had, you know, earlier outlined as something that I I feel is a core value or something that maybe I aspire to. Or it's a value that was, you know, really highlighted for me growing up as in being important. I want to add an edit to it. Like I, I would 
be happy or I'd be okay with a profiler or an expert not being humble as long as they've actually got the bona fides, as long as they're doing it. Like if you want to be a showman with a big shiny suit and a pompadour, go ahead and do it. But you better be fucking on top of your research. You know, you better have all your ducks in a row. And that's the thing, again, that that pisses me off is over and over again, going to conferences and like looking at a PowerPoint slide and going, okay, mm-hmm. that's bullshit. That's right. absolute bullshit. And somebody <laughs> just gave you $10,000 to be here. That really yeah. angers me. But again, following your outline here, let's talk about when they got it wrong. So April 19th, 1989, an explosion took place in the number two 16-inch gun turret of the USS Iowa battleship during a fleet exercise near Puerto Rico. This event resulted in the loss of 47 crew members and significant damage to that turret. Two separate investigations, one by the U.S. Navy and another by the Government Accountability Office, known as GAO or GAO, and Sandia National Laboratories. They were all conducted to determine the cause of the explosion. However, These inquiries yielded conflicting findings. The Navy conducted a four-month investigation into the incident and included a profile created by the FBI's BAU. Right. So Navy gunner Clayton Hartwig was one of the men killed that day. And the Navy learned a lot about Hartwig that was suspicious and troubling during their investigation. He had tried to die by suicide while in high school and considered himself an expert in explosives and in detonation. They also found in his belongings a scrapbook on ship disasters and a handbook that offered explicit prescriptions for exacting violent revenge on one's enemies. So red flags, right? (laughs) And in the 1,100-page report about the incident, the Navy, again, had brought in the FBI to sort of do some profiling work here. And the FBI characterized Hartwig as, quote, a troubled young man who was emotionally devastated by the real and perceived rejections of those he befriended and loved. The profile went so far as to say, Clayton Hartwig died as a result of his own actions, staging his death in such a fashion that he hoped it would appear to be an accident. It was also noted that just right before the incident happened that he had been rejected by another sailor whom they didn't say whether it was romantic or not, or if he was just trying to sort of further a friendship, but it was sort of this, you know, again, kind of adding to the lore that we always think that there's a trigger right before somebody acts out violently. So his family actually told a different story. And certainly we know that families will often express denial in a variety of ways, not only families, but like close friends, you know, the expanded community of that nexus will be in a sense of denial. It's it's not unusual for that to happen, especially when we're looking at really unimaginable behaviors of that loved one. So the family comes forward and they strongly contest that Hartwig was in a headspace to do something so horrible. His sister, Kathleen uh, Cubicina, said, my brother was not a depressed, despondent, suicidal murderer. They have no physical evidence and they use the word probably in the report. And then after months of investigation and after spending $5 million, they're going to tell the American public probably? Yeah. The Senate Armed Services Committee then conducted their own investigation, and their report was titled USS Iowa Tragedy and Investigative Failure. So when they looked at it, they faulted the Navy for conducting 
basically a one-man inquiry after very minimal testing to determine if this could even have been an accident. The committee reserved its harshest criticism for the FBI psychological profile of Hartwig that really the Navy relied upon to back up a theory of suicide and just found the perfect fall guide to kind of close this case out. So after prodding from the Senate Armed Services Committee, the Navy performed more experiments, finally admitting that the explosion could have possibly been a malfunction or an accident. So this may not have been anyone's fault at all, except you know, a logistical mechanical malfunction, which is just really sad. But the the whole idea of this is that to me, what stood out is that the profile comments exactly on this one person rather than here's what you might be looking for. And I know we don't have the entire profile like laid out here or how that evolved over time, but with quotes of a profiler specifically speaking to one person, it's really, really leading. Well, yeah. I mean, look at, look at our genre that we are active in you know, with this podcast, there's plenty of our listeners and fans of other podcasts that probably have bookshelves full of stories about murderers or serial killers or profiling or, (laughs) you know, or like, and I have horror novels that I read, like, so it's all about context. And you have to be careful of context when you're looking at this paradigm and this constellation that you're using. And constellation is an interesting word because constellation, Mm. astrology, you know, right? like, isn't it like in a way, like, we got to be really careful. It's like, you know, what are you looking at? And don't always go to the most sometimes, you know, Occam's razor rings true. And sometimes, no, you have to dig a little bit deeper, right? Yeah. Yeah. So turning to entertainment, of course, we have talked all about Science of the Lambs, Mindhunter, we mentioned, of course, you got Criminal Minds, all these things that came out with really profiling at the center. I thought it was, it would be fun to go back and watch Taking Lives, which is a 2004 American psychological thriller film starring Angelina Jolie and Ethan Hawke. Turns out I love profiling. I love Angelina Jolie. Doesn't really hold up. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of like, so she, she's a profiler that goes up to Canada to help on this serial murder case. And the very first scene of showing her is like her lying in the grave that was dug by the perpetrator for the victim, trying to get a feel for everything. And it's like a lot of her wearing all black, staring at crime scene photos while eating and laying in bed. I really wanted it to be as good as I remember it, but the, it, you know, it is what it is for 2004. The storyline is essentially this, this killer kills people and then takes on their personas and takes on their lives and kind of just goes through life like that as a con man. So it's, eh, it's all right. You know, nothing can, I mean, as much as I love Signs of the Lambs, if we're really looking at FBI, BAU, I don't think anything can beat Mindhunter. It's just so good. No, 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 no. Nothing's going to beat Mindhunter, especially because it's based on, you know, it's based on real stuff. So was Angel was Angelina Jolie in Bone Collector? Yes, she was in Bone so Collector So that was too. better. I thought yeah, that I was a better I agree. one. That certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't Silence of the Lamb being 10, but it was better. But <laughs> Angelina Jolie, like she's such a good actress and Love know her. nothing about her personally. There's all sorts of stuff that goes around. Who, who knows what's true? I think she's a really great actress when given great material. But man, we had a hate watch of some movie of hers that came out like a year and a half ago called Those Who Would Wish Me Dead, where she plays a smoke jumper. 
Oh, yes. I saw the trailer. It It looked awful. So awful. It was so awful. And I watched it in my friend's screening room. And there were like six of us just going, can we turn it off now? And we were like, no, we got to power through. We got to pour it. She has this horrible wig with like a 30 pound ponytail swinging around. And she's like, you know, fighting fires. Yeah. Like that thing's not going to go up in flames. (laughs) (laughs) That that acrylic ponytail. Yeah. Well, she named one of her daughters Shiloh. So let's just have a moment for that. Clearly she admires you. (laughs) So look, one thing in closing this up, this very long episode, folks, is this is not about being a diss on profiling. It really isn't. But we wanted to look at what research is out there to give people an understanding. And again, as we mentioned in previous episodes, profiling is not something that you just like, I'm going to get my degree in psychology and I'm going to be a profiler for the Sequoia local police department or something. That's just not the way it works. And actually right. people need to know that. So that yeah, you're making yeah. appropriate career section that profiling itself is a skill. It is a, like a craft that you learn and you can have any kind, you could be an accountant and go to yeah. the FBI and, and become a profiler. But you know, it's again, it's not a diss. It's about those of us working in a science that is sometimes considered soft and in a science that has recently found to have a lot of purposely incorrect data being presented by academic institutions. We want to create a community of people that makes us all aspire to a much higher level of professionalism. Yeah, uh, agreed. And I I find it as a very valuable tool. I have really believed in it in that sense for a very long time. When I was an undergrad, I, I was in a legal psychology class, and I probably have told this story before, but we were given an assignment to write a paper on something, you know, sort of adjacent. We could, we kind of had the luxury to pick. And I told my professor that I wanted to write it on criminal profiling. And she was like, that's not a thing. I strongly advise that you do not write your paper on that. And it's going to be a waste of your time. And I wrote my paper on it anyway. (laughs) And I was just telling the story to my friend, Christine, who is doing some profiling work. She's in law enforcement. Hello to Christine and her, her peers over at UC Irvine. Hey, Christine. She's in a a program over there. But, you know, I I thought it was important for her to say that to me almost gave me a little bit more fire to go, well, what is the research behind it? How useful is it? And I found it, there was much less then than there is now, you know, in the late 90s. But I felt like this episode was kind of a revisiting of that. And knowing everything that I know now, having higher education and knowing how to look at studies. And, you know, it, I I come back kind of to the same place. If it's a tool that is helpful and used within the parameters that we outlined today and there's no harm being done, great. Let's, let's put it forth. So the same thing with the, like we were saying with the Rorschach is that when you've got, I understand your professor's perspective on it. Like (laughs) I I get it because I would be really angry too, if something that had been such a basic tool had been disabused as an expert, Mm -hmm. but I kind of admired that my professor came in and said, we got a problem here. Here's a big problem but we don't throw the baby out with the bash bash water. We don't throw the baby out with the bath water because there is a lot of validated stuff here that is amazing. And it's yep. especially I like in the ones that I did when I got, you know, kind of proficient at it, I was like, 
whoa, yeah. wow, this stuff is amazing. Well, and that was a great lesson for you guys in the nuance and of psychology and how things change. Yeah. So I think it was really valuable. All right, everyone, we have kept you way too long. This is like an old school LA Not So Confidential episode Seriously. here. <laughs> but we hope you enjoyed and we will see you next week on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.